welcome to the Republican Professor. This afternoon on Good Friday, we have a special guest, Ralph Rossum. Thank you for joining us, Ralph. I'm so happy to be on your uh, podcast, uh, Lucas. I'm happy you're on too. Um, we brought uh, Professor Rossum on today to talk about his book, Federalism, the Supreme Court, and the 17th Amendment. The subtitle is The Irony of Constitutional Democracy. And it's published by Lexington Books. And I've um, been going through this for quite a while. <laughs> and um, I got to tell you, it really made me rethink uh, my love of some Supreme Court decisions. And, uh, you know, I thought, why not just have you come on if you're willing to and tell us the story behind the book? How did you come up with this topic for this book? Well, it's an, uh, it's an interesting story. Uh, I was sitting in my office in March of uh, not a 20, uh, 1987. And I got a phone call from John Baker, a law professor at LSU. Uh, and he explained that uh, LSU is in Louisiana and Louisiana is a civil law state uh, not only uh, is the common law practice, but a uh, European civil law of the Code Napoleon, and uh, that they thought it would be important for their students if they wanted to uh, have a chance to study over a summer in a real civil law country. And they chose Aix-en-Provence. Uh, it, it, it's one of the most beautiful cities on earth. It's in the south of France. And uh, they had uh, established this program where in the summer, uh, they would bring over a Supreme Court justice after the court's term concluded. So starting in early July. And for a month, have that Supreme Court justice teach LSU students who came over uh, from the United States, and, uh, and the students would also take real uh, French uh, civil law courses as well. And so he's explaining this to me and I'm figuring out why is he telling me all of this? And he says that uh, they had invited Justice Scalia. Scalia was appointed to the court, confirmed and began serving in October of 86. And so it's now near the, the end of uh, Scalia's first term on the court. And they approached him and he, they said, it's the bicentennial year. You have often cited the Federalist in your academic writings and as a, just, uh, as a judge on the Ninth, uh, uh, the DC circuit. And would you be willing to teach a course on the American founding? And he said, well, I know the Federalist well, but I have to admit, I've never read the records of the federal convention. And I had written fairly extensively on the records of the federal convention. And that's why they approached me and they said, 
would you like to team teach a course in the American founding with Justice Scalia? Wow. Wow. Yeah. How cool, well, how cool imagine, is that? You can imagine how little time it took me to say yes to that. Now, uh, LSU is paying uh, a fairly lavish uh, honorarium for Scalia to come and put him up in a really fine uh, place. And uh, Maureen, his wife, was there as well. And um, they didn't offer me an honorarium, but I was director of the Salvatore Center, so I had a summer stipend in any case, but they covered all of our travel expenses for the whole family and uh, put us up in a wonderful apartment just one block away from the Kur Mirabu, uh, one of the most wow. famous streets in X. And wow. uh, my day began with uh, getting up at about eight o'clock, having a nice breakfast, spending an hour and a half to preparing for class, taking a quick shower and shave, and walking 10 minutes to uh, the law school. Wow. And teaching with Scalia from uh, 11 uh, to 1. And we did that Monday through Thursday. Uh, I, I'd come back at 1 o'clock. Wow. Uh, my wife would have prepared a wonderful uh, luncheon, uh, fresh food out of the local markets. And like wow. at 2 o'clock, we'd get in the car and we would explore uh, Provence and get back at like 10 at night and then get up the next day and do it all over again. Uh, wow. and, and it was a glorious month. Well, so uh, I, I thought here is Scalia who hasn't read the records. Here's my chance to teach him the records. And so the first part of the course was going through the records of the Federal Convention of 1787, Max Farron's four uh, volume work. The two volumes that really uh, immediately have James Madison's notes and others who uh, wrote notes uh, concerning what was going on day to day. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do this in parentheses. I expected that Scalia would then start citing the records and he never did. And I thought, boy, did I fail as a, a, a teacher of the records that <laughs> Scalia never used them. But when I started working on my book on Scalia, I realized Scalia totally rejects what's called legislative history. Mm -hmm. He wants, uh, upon his death, William Eskridge, a uh, 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 Yale law prof said, for Scalia, uh, you might say to sum up his approach, it's the text, the whole text and nothing but the text. Yeah. And so Scalia wasn't interested in how it was formed. He was only interested in what the actual words were. And so when I uh, came to understand Scalia's approach, I understood why he never uh, cited uh, the records because they were so much legislative history in his mm -hmm. mind. And well, anyway, going back yeah, to- That makes sense. Going back to the in-class presentation, uh, the in-class experience with him, he had been a law prof uh, at uh, University of Virginia, then U of Chicago. And uh, I had no hesitation about interrupting him in mid-sentence when he was making Various uh, various claims. Uh, it it was just a lot of fun. 
And anyway, it, it set in motion a friendship with uh, Scalia. Uh, when I was at CMC, whenever I, I would be going to Washington, DC, I would call his chambers and see if he was available to go out for lunch. And uh, he often was. Oh, wow, that's cool. Uh, we would climb in one of the uh, Supreme Court limos and be taken to uh, his favorite restaurant. And was there a security detail? No, it was the two of us. Really? And, yeah. Just the driver and you? Yeah. And uh, oh. I, actually, at one of the restaurants, uh, Scalia and I were having lunch in one booth and Rehnquist was having lunch in the next booth. And there was no security detail whatsoever. What year was that, do you think? That would have been... The late 80s. Wow. Uh, Different time. Early 90s. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so that's uh, surprising to me, especially after what happened with Reagan in 81. Yeah. Uh, well, but uh, anyway, I would, I would buy the wine and uh, uh, we would chat and, and, and basically I would go <laughs> home afterward and take uh, write down uh, what transpired in the conversation and treated it basically as an interview. Uh, mm. And so uh, oh. maybe a little more on Scalia before we get back to the 17th Amendment. Please. Uh, the more Scalia, the better. Hey, this is great. Well, so um, one time I uh, was going to D.C. and I called his chambers and I said, can we have lunch? It was a Friday. And he said, I, uh, I, I have to go to a uh, memorial service at noon, but why don't you come by my chambers at three in the afternoon? And so I did. And this is right after my book on Scalia had come out. And the, uh, I was waiting in the marshal's office to be escorted back to his chambers. And the, uh, the, the uh, secretary, whatever, in, uh, in his chambers came to uh, retrieve me. And as she was walk walking back, she said, I'm really new at the job. I've only been here two weeks. And my first assignment was to read your book. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Scalia's That's a high compliment. Yeah. That's a very high compliment. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm in Scalia's chambers and uh, partly I'm there because CMC wanted to invite him to come and give a talk on campus. Uh, uh, Claremont McKenna College has something called the Res Publica Society. If you contribute at a certain level, uh, you are a member of that society and uh, two or three times a year, you'll be invited to give a, uh, 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 you'll be invited to hear a, a major speaker uh, at a uh, convention hotel uh, 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 there'll be six, 700 of those attending and they're big names. And they said, uh, well, uh, uh, Ralph, you, you were once dean of faculty. And when you were dean of faculty, Scalia came. And that was shortly after uh, I had team talk with him. And they said, what did he charge? And he said, I have no idea. I wasn't part of that negotiation. And they said, we're prepared to offer him $40,000 for two talks. 
uh, one on campus and one for the rest public and society. And we'll fly him and his wife first class airfare and we'll put them up at a really nice hotel. And so they had sent a letter to Scalia inviting him to come, but they didn't include any information about uh, what they were willing to offer. Because uh, first of all, uh, they didn't know uh, whether he was able to receive an honorarium. And, uh, and two, they had no idea what it might be. And so I'm, I'm in his chambers and uh, I, I said, did you get the letter from Claremont McKenna? And he said, yes. And I said, well, they're prepared to offer you. I thought 40,000 was outrageous. <laughs> I said, they're prepared to offer you 20,000 plus first class airfare and this and that. And he thought for a moment and he said, I'll take half. Now, I think that may have wow. been, his calculation was they can only accept so much uh, additional honorarium compensation per year. Now, that's not the case for book royalties. Scalia and Brian Garner, a law profit, uh, uh, oh, it, it's, in, uh, uh, yeah. it's in Dallas, uh, uh, SMU, SMU Law School. Uh, wrote a book called Making Your Case, The Art of Persuading Judges. Yeah. And one year, uh, they have to report uh, financial disclosures each year. Mm -hmm. And one year, Scalia's portion of the, honor, uh, of the royalties for that book was $80,000. Wow. Uh, so uh, on, uh, the book is called uh, Making Your Case, The Art of Persuading Judges. And... Uh, it's giving appellate uh, written and oral advocates uh, advice as to how to make your case, how to persuade uh, judges. Scalia hates legislative history. Yeah. But in the book, he said, look, if you know you're appearing before a panel that uses it, you've got to give it to them. Uh, so uh, my uh, daughter-in-law, is an associate with Jones Day, one of the biggest law firms in the country. She's in the uh, Irvine office. And I had an extra copy of this book and I gave it to her, uh, or I tried to give it to her. And she said, no, I already have it. Every partner and associate was given a copy of the book, which, well, says something about its, uh, its, its uh, uh, impact. Well, um, so, uh, when Scalia uh, came to, I, I, I'm in his office and he says, I'll take 10. And then he said, did you read my opinion in Rapanos? Uh, Rapanos against uh, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, uh, EPA. No, Ar Army Corps of Engineers, Army Corps of Engineers. And it was a case that had to deal with Rapanos who had put some soil on a low spot, 20 miles from the nearest river, but he was accused of polluting the navigable waterways of uh, the United States and had imposed on him a huge fine. And he got his case before the Supreme Court and Scalia was prepared to write the majority opinion when uh, Anthony Kennedy went uh, light. Anthony Kennedy agreed that what happened to Rapanos was uh, uh, impermissible, 
but he was unwilling to establish a hard and fast rule uh, on the matter. And I said, no, I, 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 I haven't read the opinion. Uh, uh, that's a commerce clause case. And Altar, my con law, uh, my con law co-author, uh, is responsible for those cases. And he said, oh, yeah. I, and he pointed up and he said, I've got your books right up here. Uh, and then he got on the phone and called uh, to the outer office and said, uh, print out a copy of Rapanos. And in, in it came. And he paged through and he found what he wanted. And it was where Kennedy was unwilling to give any firm guidance for the Army Corps of Engineers or for landowners as to what can or can't be done. And he dropped a footnote uh, at that point concerning uh, Kennedy's unwillingness to, to be conclusive. And the footnote re uh, was, was about an ancient uh, uh, Hindu uh, uh, priest who was talking to an acolyte and said, the world is uh, supported on the back of a giant tiger that stands on the back of a giant elephant that stands on the back of a giant turtle. And the acolyte said, what does the turtle stand on? And nonplussed for a moment, the uh, uh, priest regains his composure and says, well, from then on, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> Scalia, Scalia wanted me to, to, to hear that. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, so anyway, going back to uh, Scalia and the course in ex uh, uh, in uh, ex on Provence. One day in class, this is spring of '87, uh, summer of '87. That spring, the Supreme Court handed down South Dakota against Dole, and this was the case uh, in which the court upheld uh, Congress's power to withhold five percent of federal highway funds from all states that didn't raise the drinking age to 21. And re remember with the passage of the 26th Amendment lowering the voting age to uh, 18, lots of states lowered the drinking age. You know, if you're old enough to be drafted at 18, uh, you yeah. should be able to vote and you should be able to drink. Well, uh, there was carnage on the highway in part as a result of that. So Congress did a, a kind of nudge, 5% was not considered by the court to be coercive. And Scalia joined uh, the majority opinion by Rehnquist saying, uh, this is constitutional. Uh, but then Scalia blurted out, I could not imagine that a pre-17th Amendment Senate would have uh, agreed to this measure because they, the senators were ambassadors of their states and they would have looked out for state interests. And the senators would have uh, been apprehensive about standing for re-election where they'd have to go back before the state legislature and explain to those who would vote either to return him or not, why he had so little confidence in their 
uh, uh, in, 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 in the state's judgments that it required federal, over, uh, uh, federal control. And that hit me like a lightning bolt. I had never thought about the 17th Amendment for one minute. How long had you been teaching at, at this time? 72 to 87, 25 years. 15 years? Uh, pardon? 15 years, 72 to 87? That'd be 15 years. Okay, 15, yeah. That's a uh, long time not to think about the 17th Amendment. So you just had thought, what was your opinion about the 17th Amendment? Well, uh, uh, just that, you know, it, it put it in the hands of the, uh, the, the, uh, the citizenry to vote for senators as they voted for uh, representatives. But I, I never thought about the kind of structural ramifications of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and so over the next number of, of years, I was teaching uh, annually uh, a graduate class at Claremont Graduate University. Uh, and it was on national powers always. And a, a number of students were kind of celebrating the Supreme Court's invalidation of any number of, of uh, FDR's New Deal initiatives. And I said, but of course, a pre-17th Amendment Senate would have never agreed to uh, th this vast expanse of federal power at the expense of the states. And uh, th that with the uh, 17th Amendment having been ratified, uh, the original uh, constitutional design, the original federal design was altered. And for the court to step in and uh, now strike down uh, these measures, uh, this democratically elected Senate having voted for them uh, is, uh, is judicial activism at its worst. And so I made that argument for a number of years. And then in 1998, I got the opportunity to spend uh, six months as a visiting fellow at uh, the Liberty Fund in Indianapolis. Uh, the the uh, Pierre Goodrich, having nothing to do with the tire company, uh, founded Liberty Fund. He was a graduate of Wabash College, an all men's college with a, a strong liberal arts uh, tradition. And uh, Pierre Goodrich uh, was uh, able, they, uh, they owned uh, various mining interests. They owned the Indiana Telephone Company. They owned uh, a number of banks. And Pierre Goodrich was prudent, shrewd, clairvoyant enough to uh, see the oncoming Great Depression. And he took most of his businesses to cash and came out of the depression with tons of money and made an absolute fortune and donated ultimately about $500 million to endow the Liberty Fund. And the Liberty Fund is not a grant making foundation, it's an operating foundation. They do their own programming. And 
uh, one of the things they do are all kinds of, well, they, they did for 15 years, my week long seminar for federal judges. We would have like 18 federal judges meeting in, in uh, luxury resort places like uh, Marriott's Casa Marina in uh, Key West wow. uh, or various places in uh, uh, the Copley Place Marriott in Boston or uh, uh, mm -hmm. uh, well, great places. We, uh, it was a week long seminar. We were asking a judge for two weeks of their year uh, for 2% of their year. And so we wanted to do it in places where they would invite their uh, spouses to come. And, uh, and so we would have 18 federal judges uh, and, and a panel of uh, uh, scholars taking uh, them through the drafting and ratification of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment. And uh, well, anyway, the Liberty Fund did that and they also had a visiting fellow program. And so I sent, spent six months. Uh, my only responsibility was to show up at the office from eight to five, wear a coat and tie, and then do whatever I wanted. And I decided that would be the perfect opportunity to see if I could really make that 17th Amendment argument work. And uh, wow. I ended up uh, Great writing, idea. A long, <laughs> writing a long law review article that uh, the University of San Diego Law School published. And uh, I then subsequently plumped that article up into, uh, into, this, uh, in, into this book. Um, An interesting thing uh, about the law review article. Uh, Susan Ehrlich was on the Court of Appeal in Arizona and she had come to one of my no, I, I'd attended uh, another Liberty Fund seminar with her and we became friends. Uh, she actually, uh, when Sandra Day O'Connor got appointed to the Supreme Court, um, Susan Ehrlich was uh, elected to uh, the position that O'Connor vacated. And she loved to copy edit. And I sent her the law review draft and she said, I don't like the ending. You've got to make it stronger. And she made all kinds of nice improvements. And so uh, on March, uh, on May 15, 2000, the Supreme Court handed down Morrison against uh, United States. And it dealt with the question of the constitutionality of a provision of VAWA, the Violence Against Women's Act. And uh, the question was, where did Congress get the power to pass this? And there were two sources of power. One was the Commerce Clause, and the other was Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. And uh, the Supreme Court found neither availing. And uh, Souter, uh, David Souter, Justice Souter, wrote a lengthy dissent. And I'm reading that dissent. And suddenly, something looks really familiar. And uh, I went to the law review article and Souter had basically lifted four pages right out of my law review article without citation. Oh, wow. And there were subtle changes. If I said Madison and Hamilton, 
Pitt said, Hamilton and Madison. So I, I did side by sides, I highlighted the passages and I showed it to some colleagues and they said, oh, you've got to read, uh, write a letter accusing Souter of being a plagiarist. And I said, I've been cited by the Canadian Supreme Court. I want to be cited by the US Supreme Court. I don't want to charge them with plagiarism. I want to be cited. And so I drafted a letter and I called Susan Ehrlich, this judge in Arizona. And I read the side-by-sides and she said, oh, you've got a right to sue her. And so I did. Uh, and, and, and so I read her, I said, listen to this. And I read her my, my letter and she said, I, uh, I don't like it. Uh, email it to me and let me play with it. And so later in the afternoon, it came back and it was softer in some respects because it said, this was doubtless the mistake of a harried clerk at the end of a busy term. But it yeah. was also insistent that I decided. And so I didn't alter a word. I printed it out, signed my name, uh, and included in an envelope to suitor both the letter and the side-by-sides. And right at the end of the court's term, I get a letter from Souter saying, Professor, dear Professor Rossum, thank you for your letter, of course. And uh, he said, you've made a very fine point and I will make certain that there is a citation in the final version of the US reports. And then he went on and said, but there's a fine point to be made on the other side. He'd obviously now read the article. He said, you view me as a sinner in this case and that and the other. And he said, I don't know that I need to cite you because I don't agree with you. And then wow, he went to the next paragraph <laughs> to say, I have never really thought through the intellectual debt I owe to those people whose works I cite. Well, anyway, uh, I, tell, I, I tell the story to my students and I say, listen, if any of you ever get in trouble with the Academic Affairs Committee for engaging in plagiarism, come to me and I can negotiate the sale of a copy of this uh, letter so you can cite a Supreme Court justice as saying, well, I did cite it because I didn't agree with it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so uh, anyway, he, he did cite me uh, uh, in, in the final uh, uh, version. Um, so um, wow. the, the 17th Amendment article becomes uh, the book. And yeah. uh, I was asked by the editor of something called The American Interest to uh, do a brief piece on the 17th Amendment. And he entitled it, A Short History of a Big Mistake. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, let me just uh, uh, mention something. Sure. Uh, right, the, right before the Bill of Rights begins, right before the First Amendment, mm -hmm. Uh, in the uh, government printing office version of the uh, U.S. Constitution, they insert the following. Articles in addition to an amendment of the Constitution of the United States. Most amendments are additions to. Right. Like the, like the Bill of Rights. Yeah. The 13th Amendment, 
the 15th Amendment. Uh, the 16th Amendment is a correction of judicial error in uh, the uh, 1895 uh, case that I'm drawing a blank of right now, uh, which struck down uh, an income tax. Uh, the uh, 19th Amendment uh, was, uh, uh, well, the, the 18th Amendment obviously was an addition. The 19th uh, Women's Suffrage, uh, the uh, 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 20th, the, uh, the, yeah. the uh, 21st, the repeal of Prohibition. Um, so you're saying that they don't go into the original text and add it there. They just tack it on at the end. And then yeah. you have to you but, have to think about how it alters. Uh, the 14th Amendment is actually an amendment of uh, because it gets rid of the three fifths clause. It's a correction of judicial error uh, because of uh, uh, the Dred Scott decision. And it's in, in addition to, because it gives us the privileges and immunities, it gives us everything else, privileges, yes. everything in sections one through five. Um, the 12th amendment is an, a, a real amendment because it alters the method of presidential election and alters article two. Um, this 17th amendment is one of those few that is really an amendment uh, of, of the constitution. Uh, because it takes us from election of the Senate by state legislatures to uh, a, a direct election uh, of the uh, Senate. And see. so- uh, Yeah, I see what you're saying. So when, when I started thinking about the, uh, the 17th Amendment, the subtitle of the book, The Irony of Constitutional Democracy. Yeah, that's an interesting subtitle. Uh, and caught, caught uh, my eye, that's for sure. The irony. Yeah. Well, and, and so what happens? Uh, the original mode of protecting federalism was not an activist Supreme Court, but... Uh, the mode of electing the Senate. Senators were understood to be uh, ambassadors from uh, their, uh, yes. their states. Uh, yes. yeah. uh, listen to this quotation from Alexander Hamilton. This is in the New York ratifying convention. When you take a view of all of the circumstances which have been recited, you will certainly see that the senators will constantly look up to the state governments with an eye of dependence and affection. If they are ambitious to continue in office, they will make every prudent arrangement for this purpose. And whatever may be their private sentiments or politics, they will be convinced that the surest means of obtaining reelection will be a uniform attachment to the interests of their several states. Um, the, 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 not so much the initial election of the senator, but the political right. ambition of being reelected right. yeah. will make certain that they are ambassadors of their states and that they will, uh, rep that they will protect the interests of their state as a state uh, and yeah. ensure that federalism is thereby uh, maintained, that the residuary and inviolable sovereignty of the states, as Federalist 39 describes it, mm -hmm. is maintained. Do you well, mind if I make a comment there? 
please. The uh, there seem to be a lot of folks that um, make the case or seem to assume that the founding generation did not want professional politicians. And that quote that you just read there seems to imply and that <laughs> that that was kind of a virtue of the way they set it up was that the senator would want to be reelected. Yes. And well, that would be a sufficient motivation to do a good job. Remember Federalist 51, let ambition check ambition. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so yes. it's, it, there's a popular misunderstanding, I think, going around. I think there's also a, a push to have term limits. And that would seem to undermine um, the original design, which was that it, the assumption is the reason they do it, want to do a good job is to get reelected. <laughs> they yes. want to get reelected. That's that's a good thing. Well, I just wanted to make that point. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of self-interest, I'll, I'll continue the digression. Yeah. Mercy, okay. Mercy Warren, who was the uh, wife of uh, uh, James Warren and the uh, sister of James Otis, wrote a three volume work. They were good friends. She was good friends of Abigail Adams and John Adams. And she wrote a three volume work entitled The History of the Rise, Progress and Termination of the American Revolution. This and is a, a person named James Warren's wife. Yes. Mer Mercy Warren. Mercy Warren. Okay. And in the book, she writes, Americans are too proud for monarchy, too poor for nobility, and it is to be feared, too selfish and avaricious for a virtuous republic. Mm. Isn't that a great statement? Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the founders agreed, and the, the yeah. solution was uh, self-interest. Yeah. Uh, they let ambition check ambition. Um, and uh, yeah. let, let the self, uh, let the self-interest be a sentinel for the public good. Um, well, any, any, anyway, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, yeah. And so, but channel, but channel it, it, structure it in such a way that it's channeled for, well, the structure will counteract the worst elements. Yeah. But and, you have to have the self, you have to have the ambition or it doesn't work. Exactly. And, and so, uh, for, for a while, that tended to work out quite, uh, quite well. Mm -hmm. But then the democratic impulse yes. uh, begins to uh, dominate. Mm -hmm. There was an 86-year campaign to uh, um, alter the mode of electing the Senate. Uh, it, uh, most of the early, all of the early efforts were in the House of Representatives where they would propose a constitutional amendment to alter how the Senate is elected. Uh, they, they, they went nowhere. Um, and uh, uh, finally, uh, in uh, right after the election uh, of uh, Woodrow Wilson, who had long caught coattails, 
uh, there were sufficient number of uh, uh, senators uh, elected, uh, Democratic senators elected who supported uh, this change. Uh, and uh, they, they, push it, uh, they push it through. And uh, the uh, 17th Amendment, when it was ratified, was uh, the second most uh, um, shortest, it, it had the second shortest period of time to become ratified of all amendments to date. Uh, the 12th Amendment was ratified more quickly with regard to uh, changing how uh, the Electoral College operated. Um, and, and, and so we had this push to put, they wanted democracy more than they wanted yeah. a, uh, a original means of protecting federalism. Mm -hmm. And so the irony becomes, now that the original federal design has been changed, the court wants to step in and protect that original federal design by striking down laws that this new democratically elected Senate has helped uh, uh, pass. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, originally we had uh, federalism protected both structurally, the mode of electing the Senate and democratically because the state legislatures were themselves democratically elected. But after the 17th amendment with an activist court, we have uh, federalism now protected, not by structure, but simply uh, by an activist court invalidating actions of a democratically elected Senate. <laughs> and uh, so that's, that's the irony. And yes, it is the irony. That, that, some people listening to this in the future might think, I think it's an odd, you're, you're, you're now a, um, you're a fan of Scalia, I think. Um, yes. it, it must feel a little strange to uh, be on the same side as Souter, um, which I think you were saying <laughs> earlier. And uh, yeah. Souter is now citing you. So is that, is that politics makes strange bed bedfellows, I guess, but you're saying yeah. that you're, you see, um, you well, see uh, what Souter was saying, or actually Souter saw what you were saying. You should have given you credit for it right away, but whereas I guess his clerk should have. But. So, you know, I, uh, I had occasion to over lunch with Scalia say, uh, especially in the state sovereign immunity cases, um, the in the Constitution originally, Article 3, Section 2 gave uh, federal courts power to hear uh, cases involving a state and a citizen of another state. In Chisholm against Georgia in 1793, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, five of the six justices, everybody back in the day wrote a separate opinion, uh, concluded uh, that uh, Chisholm's suit against Georgia, he was from, I think, South Carolina, uh, concerning land, uh, uh, lands that were seized from him during the Revolutionary War, uh, that Chisholm uh, had uh, standing uh, to sue. Uh, there was no understanding of state sovereign immunity. The ratchet turned both ways. A state could sue a citizen but the citizen can sue a state. And uh, 
Uh, James Wilson's uh, opinion was perhaps the most persuasive in that respect. Well, this offended lots of state legislatures. They didn't want citizens of another state hauling them into federal court. So they uh, urged, they, uh, yeah. what, what's the phrase? They, they commanded their senators and requested their House of Representatives, their representatives to uh, adopt a, a constitutional amendment uh, overturning Chisholm. And uh, that passed really, uh, uh, really uh, quickly. Uh, but that's the 11th uh, Amendment you're talking yes. about. Yeah. yeah. But what Story the 11th Amendment, Amendment said was uh, no diversity jurisdiction suits. You can't, uh, you, you, uh, uh, a citizen of one state can't sue uh, another state. But the Constitution itself says that the court the federal courts would have jurisdiction in all cases arising under the constitution and the laws of the United States and treaties made or which shall be made. And so that quite apart from diversity jurisdiction, there's this arising under or subject matter jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And the 11th amendment doesn't address that at all. And yet uh, the uh, uh, Supreme Court in a whole series of course, cases that I recount in, in the book uh, acted as if the 11th Amendment barred not only diversity jurisdiction cases, but arising under cases as well. And uh, when I was having lunch with Scalia, I would say, how can you as a textualist uh, agree to an opinion by Rehnquist, which said, uh, when it comes to the 11th Amendment, uh, what matters are not the words, but the idea behind them. And uh, so we would have a, 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 great, uh, a, a great debate on, on, on that. Yeah. I also have written a book on uh, Clarence Thomas called Understanding Clarence Thomas, mm -hmm. The Jurisprudence of Constitutional Restoration. And- uh, Wonder, uh, Wonderful uh, book, I've read it. <laughs> on these state sovereign immunity cases, uh, Thomas actually goes so far as to uh, apply it not simply to federal courts, but to federal administrative agencies, the Federal Maritime Commission, uh, which, which I, I, I criticize him in the book. Uh, it's it's totally, uh, it's it's hard for me to respect a textualist who departs so far from the text. I see. Uh, that makes sense. Um. It's a, there's a lot of detail in your 17th amendment book and the, uh, the thought that um, some of our most treasured judges on the uh, ju uh, federal judges, uh, justices on the Supreme court, people that we come to think of as uh, defending the constitution would uh, miss something like that. So obviously um, especially the, 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 um, the commerce clause cases, you know, yeah. that, that's, um, it was, uh, I think it was the Rehnquist court, which was the first to try to put an outer limit on those, on, yeah. on the commerce Lopez. clause cases. Lopez. Yeah. Uh, and, and that we, was not very long ago. Yeah. yeah. 
the substantial he admitted that the substantials the the broad interpretation of the substantial effects test has taken us a long way toward basically giving the federal court uh, the federal government uh, uh, police powers yes uh, they said he said oh we've taken too many steps we're not going to take one more uh-huh. so you're saying that uh, maybe maybe somebody listening to this is is barely hanging on here barely but they they're interested in what what's going on here the like the, in the case of lopez that was a it's not, it was actually a gun case it wasn't a second amendment case but it was uh, related to guns and school zones i believe is yeah right free school, school zone act something like that yeah so there was a i think it was a federal law now that you well at the time it was a federal law that was uh, prohibiting firearm possession within a certain number of feet of a school or something there was a, a, a that sound right under the commerce uh, clause there was a massacre of young kids uh in i believe uh it wasn't sacramento but uh stockton uh, 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 uh modesto uh, a central valley uh, might have been stock are you talking about stockton, stockton in 1989 stockton, yes okay and yeah, yeah i remember uh, that they Obviously, California had a law against doing <laughs> killing kids. <laughs> yeah, uh, but but the feds, uh, right. Congress had to step in and grandstand and show we are opposed uh, to this as well. Yes. As they passed the Guns Free School Zone Act that prohibited mm-hmm. uh, anyone from possessing a gun within 500 feet of right. a school, and that meant actually that as a matter of federal law, not just federal, state. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so uh, actually. Uh, if you were, if, if it's the middle of the summer on a Sunday afternoon when no school is in session, yeah. between you and the school is a river and you're on the other side of the river and you have an unloaded uh, shotgun uh, in your pickup on uh, the gun rack, mm-hmm. uh, you were subject to the punishments of having violated the Guns Free School Act. Well, anyway, Lopez brought a gun to school and... Uh, uh, Texas had a law against it, and the initial brought suit against him under the state law. But because the federal punishment uh, sanctions were more severe, mm-hmm. it was transferred to federal court. And uh, the Supreme Court said, how does simply possessing a gun in a state have a substantial impact on interstate commerce? And Yeah, that's uh, the issue. Is yeah, what does it have to do with the Commerce Clause? Yeah, <laughs> said, you know, uh, this is interstate uh, commerce, not intrastate. Yeah, this is uh, uh, extending uh, the substantial effects of test too too far. And uh, Breyer was one of the dissenters, and Breyer pointed out how actually this didn't have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And uh, he had like a twenty-eight page appendix to his opinion with lots of articles, uh, uh, academic articles. Uh, making making his case. And he argued that if there are guns in school, kids get nervous. If they get nervous, they yeah. don't learn as much. Right. If they don't learn as much, they're not going to get as good jobs. And if they don't have good jobs, they can't afford to buy goods in interstate commerce. And that was his argument for saying, this is solidly within the purview of the Commerce Clause. Yes. This legislation, yeah. this federal police power, 
Some yeah. people might not know what you mean by police power, but but generally the the idea of a police power was the states reserved a police power. Yes, and the police power was that to was for the health, welfare, morals of the community. Yeah, yeah, that's the theory of having the police, right? That's what the police is justified on. Of course, the federal there always has been a federal police power in a way because, well, for example, on military bases. Yeah. Um, yeah. there's military police, there's investigations of traditional criminal offenses like murder, stealing. Those are traditional police powers of the state to, to, um, well, to, uh, to, to prosecute those violate federal law. And for a long time, violating federal law meant, uh, embezzlement or tax evasion or, uh, uh, other things. It's only uh, more recently that we have had the right. federalization. Or on federal property, the yeah. traditional but, stuff on federal property. Yeah. And, uh, and we've only recently have we had the federalization of, fed, of, uh, of, of criminal law with the, the huge increase in the number of offenses for which uh, the FBI and other federal agencies have jurisdiction. Uh, in all, all, remember, once upon a time, all of drug offenses were state offenses only, not federal. Prior to yes, the Control that's right. Substance Act. That's right. That's time. right. Yeah. So you're saying that uh, the by changing the mode of election of the Senate, the U.S. Senate, which is what the 17th Amendment did. Originally, the state legislatures, they picked the senator by a vote, like a simple majority vote. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. So it was like passing a, a concurrent resolution or something in the state, yeah, state legislature, and um, then the senator would serve for six years ordinarily, unless they resigned or died. And the mode of election was changed because of a democratic impulse. Uh, seemed like there was a there was a movement in the 1800s toward a more democratic impulse of, and part of that was the mode of election of the U.S. Senate to take that power out of the state legislature and put it in directly in the hands of the people at the ballot box, the people of that state, so that the senators didn't view themselves so much as representing a state as the people does that sound fair to say yes okay and and, and you might ask and why that shift that shift has is has huge implications and you might ask why would state legislators vote yeah. to ratify an amendment that where they give up this power that they have to that, elect that's the yeah and uh what, why what why I, would they do that <laughs> what what i report in the book yeah Mm -hmm. is uh, it, it removes the power from the state right yeah and the, the federal it, government it, it turns out that um, electing a senator became a very time consuming and difficult matter remember mm -hmm. when the 70s when the uh, uh, constitution was ratified there wasn't an anticipation that there would be the development of political parties and true. so what happens when 
the lower chamber of a state legislature is controlled by one party and the Senate by another. How do you elect right. a senator in those circumstances where, and uh, there were, I, I, I believe, uh, I, if I recall correctly, 72 examples of legislative deadlock where uh, a uh, state would be unrepresented in the Senate uh, for a period. And sometimes that period would be a full two-year uh, legislative session. California itself twice went uh, a full two years with only one senator. Uh, Delaware went, I think a total of six years. No. So that's the two, mischief. Two years, two years yeah. with no senators whatsoever. And so that was the perceived mischief of the original mode of, of selecting the U.S. Senate. And, uh, and so how do you break a legislative deadlock? Right. The original right. Constitution doesn't tell you how to do that. You just have to, no. the legislature but, has to figure it out. And yeah. money, bribery uh, mm. was uh, uh, a, a, way of, uh, a way of doing that. Uh, uh, yeah. Congress, Congress made matters worse. They passed a law. Congress has power to regulate the time, manner, and place of election, except for the place of electing senators. And so they came up with a time and manner of measure for electing senators. And so if a state had a senator who was to be elected or reelected, there would be a voice vote in each, uh, in, in, in the first or second legislative day of the term, there would be a voice vote in both houses uh, concerning the election of, the, of a senator. If no one was elected, now with that voice vote, everyone knew who, what, how, what, where the support was and how much and who was voting how. Uh, the, if no one was elected, there was a requirement that at the beginning of every legislative day, the uh, chambers meeting separately would have to cast a vote for Senator. And this chewed up an enormous amount of legislative time. This is back when a, a state yeah. legislature met a month or two months at most per year. And, uh, and, and, and often biennially. And, and so yeah. uh, right. if, if the Congress has imposed this burden, consuming enormous amounts of legislative time to elect a senator, uh, state legislatures wanted to get rid of that, what they didn't consider a power, but a burden. And uh, gotcha. yeah, and so uh, th that was, uh, that, that was uh, uh, quite the issue. That's a pretty powerful motivation. Um, you say in your conclusion, you go to the Lincoln's Lyceum address, 1838. Yeah. Um, that's how you begin your conclusion of the book. And you quote from that, the wonderful language from Lincoln. Of course, this is before he was president, long before he was president. But um, he was such a wonderful speaker. He said that... Uh, you, you say, 
that uh, in that Lyceum address, Abraham Lincoln worried, I'm quoting from you now, Abraham worried, Abraham Lincoln worried that the founding principles of the Republic were fading from view. He said that he did not fear that they would ever be entirely forgotten, but that like everything else, now you're quoting Lincoln, they must fade upon the memory of the world and grow more and more dim by the lapse of time. I believe that's a quote from Lincoln. Nevertheless, this is you again. Lincoln warned that the consequences were profound. Those founding principles, he proclaimed, were a fortress of strength. This is now the quote from Lincoln. Were a fortress of strength. Those founding principles, he proclaimed, were a fortress of strength. But what invading foremen could never do, the silent artillery of time has done. The leveling of its walls, the silent artillery of time. So you're saying that um, Lincoln's word, I'm going to continue your quote. Lincoln's words perfectly describe the fate that has befallen the Constitution. The framers regarded the walls of constitutional structure as the remedy the quote, remedy for the diseases most incident to Republican government, end quote. This is you again. They knew that Republican government was inherently problematic. And they devoted their efforts to designing constitutional structures that would rescue it from the opprobrium under which it had previously labored and make it worthy of the esteem and adoption of mankind. They succeeded so admirably that with the lapse of time, the problematic nature of Republican government faded from the people's memory, leaving them unaware of the peril of altering or abandoning the very constitutional structures that rendered our particular Republican institutions non-problematic in practice. The 17th Amendment was one such alteration. And that's, uh, so I wanted to ask you, you, you seem to think that federalism was a very good thing in the beginning, the original design of the Constitution and this, the protection of the structural provisions that the protection of federalism, which was dominantly the mode of electing senators, not the Supreme Court coming in and striking down federal law. Um, and it sounds, it seems like when I read your book, it's, it's, it's not completely clear to me, but I think where I'm, landing on on your view on this as you as you look at the whole thing that we now that the 17th amendment is there you have to kind of side with folks like Souter on some of this stuff and just otherwise it's impermissible judicial activism and you have to let the people make these laws you have to make you have to let it play out and uh is there some kind of hope that you have that people will see 
um, some kind of reductio ad absurdum and then go back and and then take out the 17th Amendment? Is that kind of your hope? Is that how you're thinking of it? Well, uh, so the 17th Amendment is a symptom. Of, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, we could repeal the 17th Amendment today and uh, think of the senators that would be elected by the California state legislature. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would be even more radical than the ones we have right right now. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the repealing that well, the Seventeenth Amendment is a symptom of the uh, uh, it, uh, progressive embrace of uh, uh, simple democracy not the complex mitigated democracy of the founding era, but simple majoritarian democracy uh, that uh, seems so attractive to so many today. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, um, uh, yeah. Uh, by the way, my use of Lincoln, uh, when I said that uh, Susan Ehrlich, that uh, judge in Arizona, didn't like the conclu- my original conclusion to the uh, law review article, uh, that's when I went in search of what would be a good conclusion. And that's when I found the Lyceum address. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it really ties the book together because, well, you read the book and, and it just, it kind of sounds like you're, um, I, I, I'm not saying you're unclear at all. Actually, you're very clear in the book, but it just, the feeling you get that is that you're really profoundly bothered by some of these frankly republican decisions by the supreme court uh and and so if if someone was not reading it carefully they might just assume that you're just um that's just kind of how you stand on things and that's your you maybe you're like a senator there's a senator from oh gosh shell i think rhode island anyway he uh, yes, White House, White House, Senator White House. He he always calls it the Roberts Five, you know, or the the Rehnquist Five, you know. And yeah. uh, but at the end, you, you you're quoting Lincoln, and um, and you have this wonderful language in there, where it seems like it's just a tragedy. It's a the, the American experiment is in a way heroic in some ways, but it's also kind of inevitably just dying. And I don't know if that's your, how you feel about it. So I am, uh, I am very, very critical of the notion of judicial review. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I tell my students in, I make one overtly political statement in my con law classes. And after that, I won't even mention who won the presidential election. Uh, uh, And the overtly political uh, statement I make is, I would much rather be governed by uh, Bill Clinton and the Democrats who controlled the Congress early in his term, Uh, Obama and the Democrats who controlled the Congress for a, a spell then unelected judges appointed 
by Ronald Reagan. And I've told that to Scalia's face. And I say that, <laughs> and I say that because- I wish I could have seen his face. <laughs> and I, I, I say that because you can vote the rascals out, but you're uh, nonetheless left with uh, unappointed, uh, unelected judges uh, who are free to overturn what the, the populace wants. And so uh, yeah. uh, I'm uh, very dubious of, 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 of judicial review. Uh, I think Marshall got it completely wrong in Marbury against Madison. Uh, not, not the syllogism that if a law is contrary to the constitution, it's null and void. This law is contrary to the constitution. Therefore, this law is null and void. I, I accept that. But the minor premise that this law is contrary to the constitution is it was simply in the case of Marbury against Madison wrong. The court didn't expand the appellate original jurisdiction of the court. It simply said, if you have original jurisdiction, this is one of the arrows in your quiver. You can use, uh, you can, uh, you you can issue writs of mandamus. Um, uh, so uh, I'm uh, very uh, hesitant ever to embrace a Supreme Court decision striking down what the public, uh, pub the elected representatives of the public have. Uh, have have approved um i see and so well that that uh, would that I, would fit I, with I, how a lot of people feel about roe versus wade where it was really nixon's appointments well it was at least one of nixon's appointments i think it was a couple actually right well, rehnquist was on the descent but um but, the, uh, both, but both, blackman uh, was was uh, the and, one that wrote it went along with with burger and burger uh, did too yeah, and look at the disaster that's been for the last. Uh, that's been a real disaster. Yeah, and that was all the Supreme Court, and you can't get rid of them. You can't. They're there, and that's all you can look at. All the fuss that's caused. That 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 makes sense to to some degree, I guess. So um, when I was a grad student, uh, I had a very thick and full beard and mustache, and I turned conservatives off by how he looked and liberals off by what I said. And <laughs> the 17th Amendment book is something like that. Uh, I've turned off a number of conservatives who really have liked the uh, activist conclusions reached by the Rehnquist court and uh, 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 turned uh, turned off uh, uh, liberals uh, by my embrace of the founding generation's principles and embrace of Lincoln. So you're, you don't have very many friends then. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you get to, how did you get to be friends with uh, Scalia? I guess he was friends with Ginsburg. So, uh, but you're not Ginsburg. So, yeah. um, well, it, it was that just writing a careful book, uh, book on him was enough. Uh, well, you know, uh, Scalia ro uh, rolled with the punches. He, uh, yeah, he, he, um, yeah, he didn't attach uh, friendship to uh, fidelity to particular yeah. uh, outcomes. He was, he was and old the truth school is, that way. In like ninety percent of the cases, uh, Scalia and I would have agreed completely. Gotcha.
Uh, you uh, mentioned storing, uh, Herbert storing. It's not a name that maybe many people outside of certain circles know, but you mentioned him in your conclusion as well on page 283. And um, he was... Uh, your mentor in graduate school, is that right? At the University of Chicago? Yes. Uh, Herbert J. Storing uh, actually uh, was a student of Leo Strauss at the U of Chicago, got his PhD there, uh, began in public administration. He wrote a, a, a dissertation in public administration under Leonard D. White, uh, one of the, the biggest names in public administration in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, Storing then moved toward constitutional law. Um, he, he wrote a, a, a number of brilliant essays. Uh, he uh, began a massive project called The Complete Anti-Federalist. It was a seven volume work bringing together the principal uh, writings of uh, those who opposed ratification of the Constitution. Um, he, the, the first volume was, uh, the, the subsequent volumes were uh, uh, edited uh, materials from these anti-federalist writings. Volume one was entitled What the Anti-Federalists Were For, and he made the affirmative case for uh, the, the, the anti-federalist. Uh, Herb Storing, died at age 49 uh, of his second massive heart attack. Uh, he was my dissertation. In, uh, I, I was a, a research assistant for him on the complete anti-federalist. And uh, Storing wanted to uh, have annotations to every reference to something in a footnote that the anti-federalist made. And for example, uh, uh, the Maryland farmer said, uh, 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 it, it, is, it has been either written or read, I can't remember which, that freedom is protected in the hands of frugal industrious merchants. Well, Storing wanted me to find who might have said that. And this is before Google. Wow. <laughs> one, of my, one of my greatest finds was, uh, one anti-federalist writer said that Cardinal Dorit said that he would rather uh, lead mules than men into battle. And so I had to go through Cardinal Dorit's seven volumes of uh, papers of collected works, all written in 18th century French and find where Cardinal Dorit said that. Well, I couldn't find it, but I also had to find something from Abbe Mablay. And so I'm going through his four volumes of work and I find that he says that Cardinal de Ritz says that he'd rather lead mules than men into battle. Um, that, that, that was the greatest achievement I, I had in terms of uh, providing a footnote for, uh, for story. Storing was my dissertation advisor. I did a dissertation on James uh, Wilson. Uh, James Wilson, born in Scotland, was uh, educated to be uh, a Presbyterian cleric. 
but before ordination decided to emigrate to the United States, uh, studied law under John Dickinson, one of the great attorneys of the era, and uh, uh, became uh, a classic Philadelphia lawyer, uh, was one of the six people to sign both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and ended up as one of the original members of the Supreme Court. He was the first law professor appointed after the founding, uh, after the Constitution, and uh, wrote a three-volume work on uh, lectures on uh, his lectures on law offered uh, there, and uh, so uh, I turned in a draft of the dissertation to Storing. It was probably 350 pages, and he suffered a heart attack, and he was in the hospital. And he read the dissertation and wrote about 90 pages of handwritten comment on the back pages of my dissertation. Wow. Uh, and uh, it, it was a major revise. Mm. Uh, anyway, uh, I got it done. Uh, the, dis uh, the dissertation defense went well. He helped me uh, get a big piece, uh, uh, a big article published on, on James Wilson. Uh, he was at the University of Chicago, got a chance to become an endowed, to take an endowed chair at the University of Virginia and head a center uh, on the presidency. And uh, he moved there in the summer of 77. Martin Diamond, another prominent uh, American scholar, uh, yes. another student of, of, of Strauss, uh, testified uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee on uh, preserving the Electoral College uh, 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 by Senator By from uh, Idaho, no, Indiana, uh, was uh, out to uh, uh, seek direct election of the president. Uh, Diamond testifies as he steps down after his testimony, he is struck by a massive heart attack and dies on um, um, the Senate floor, uh, the the the, uh, the chambers. Uh, Storing moves to Virginia, writes a big uh, obituary for uh, Martin Diamond, gives it to uh, a colleague and says, "Read this. I'm going to go play handball," and suffers a massive heart attack and dies on the handball court. And so two of my great uh, uh, heroes died uh, within a month of each other in the summer of 77. Uh, that must and, have been devastating for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, storing what, uh, uh, one, of my, one of my students, Gary McDowell, uh, he was my student when I was at the University of uh, Memphis, uh, was, uh, admitted to the U Chicago and was studying there and followed Storing to Virginia. And so he, he leaves his home institution to go to this new place to be with his mentor Storing and Storing dies before the fall term begins, uh, leaving Gary in a bit of a lurch, but he ended up winning a, a Jefferson uh, fellowship and uh, worked under another great con law guy by the name of Henry Abraham and uh, wrote a dissertation 
uh, that the University of Chicago Press published under the title of The Supreme Court and the Equity Power. So he landed on his feet. But no, Storing was uh, just. What was a, he like as a person? Uh, Storing was built like a middle linebacker. Uh, uh, there was a 20 foot long oak. Was oak he intimidating? <laughs> you mean he was intimidating? Uh, Physically? Well, Yes. Uh, and, and he would hit that table. We were all sitting around this big, long oak table. And he would hit that table with his forefinger. And he'd make it bounce. With his finger. <laughs> you wow. could, it didn't bounce, but it certainly vibrated. You could, if you were sitting at the other end of the table, you knew that table had been hit. Wow. Uh, and uh, a, a very... Uh, a, a very. Uh, were you afraid? Were you afraid of him? <laughs> no, no. no. Uh, he was. He was such a a, a good teacher. He uh, mm. uh, he would assign readings, and I would get them. I would type out what I thought were the important passages and be ready in class, mm -hmm. and. Never what I thought was important did storing emphasize or go to. Mm -hmm. And it took me like two or three classes before I, courses, before I finally learned uh, what was important. He also taught me how to write. Uh, and he taught me how to write because I read a rough uh, draft of volume one of the complete anti-federalists, what the anti-federalists were for. And I saw how he had, with my pen, gone through and edited and smoothed out the argument, the, the language. And reading that was revelatory. Uh, I, I think he helped me become uh, the writer that I am. Wow. How well did you know Martin Diamond? Much less. Um, okay. uh, he, I, I, I was with him at some conferences, uh, APSA, American Political Science Association annual meetings. Uh, but uh, that was about the extent of it. I knew him more because of students of his who uh, were at Claremont Graduate School when Diamond was, was in Claremont before he moved to Northern Illinois. Uh, heard lots of stories about him. Uh, so I, I know him by second hand. Okay. When you I just wanted to clarify a detail, did you say that Storing had made 90 pages of handwritten notes on the backs of your first draft or your PhD dissertation? Yes. Was that from the hospital that he did that? Yes. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. And this is your dissertation at University of Chicago. Yeah. On James Wilson. You have such wonderful stories. I'm so grateful that you're, you made yourself available to share your knowledge um, and your, your experience with us. Well, it's been fun. Yes. And you've prompted me to continue my thought about judicial review. 
and the irony of constitutional democracy. And um, I, I think it's sometimes I feel like it's a never ending. Like what, what Michael Ullman used to say, which is the American politics is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> so, yes. um, did you did you want to add anything else about uh, Diamond uh, or story? Uh, uh, just one thing on Michael Ullman that apparently, hmm. uh, at least three million dollars has been raised to endow a chair in his honor. Wow. Wow, that, that's really wonderful. That's really wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, would you uh, be willing to come back on at some point and talk about some of your other books? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm almost done with your Indian gaming book. And I've read your books on Scalia and Thomas. So, uh, and I, I, I want to squeeze all of the stories that you have, <laughs> you know, but maybe before you retire, I don't know if you have the energy for that. You're, you're retiring soon. Is that correct? Probably in the next year. Okay. Uh, all right. Yeah. Well, I've been, I've been at it for 50 years. Uh, my wife pointed out to me, my first full-time teaching job was at Grinnell College. Uh, I was uh, a visitor uh, one year uh, before I moved on to University of Memphis. Students that I had the year I taught at Grinnell, if they were freshmen when I taught them, they're 68 or 69. If they were seniors, they're 72 or 73. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. that, uh, that kind of floored me when I realized that when she told me that, <laughs> yeah, you're a workhorse. Yeah. Well, yeah. And your, your books are there. Uh, well, for those listening, when you get the book, you'll see for yourself, there's a lot of detail. It's, it's a lot of details that you've had command of in constitutional law that's and it's 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 ever growing i don't know how you keep up with it but uh what a wonderful opportunity that we we have to have you on and of course you were my dissertation chair and i really appreciate all the the direction and encouragement and help that you gave me when when i was well you you did quite a quite a piece of work there on kavanaugh i really appreciate the the direction and advice helping me get through especially uh, with all the craziness, but um, we'll uh, we'll go ahead and let you go. We want to be respectful of your time. Well, thank you so much for having me, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to come back at uh, at your convenience. Look forward to it. Okay. Happy Easter.